If you do not have a copy of God's Word, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. You can turn that to page 399, Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, the thing that I've been most nervous of this entire week is reading this passage to you. And you'll, you'll understand why uh, when we get into reading it. Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaneah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars, and next to them Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired, and next to them Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, repaired, and next to them Zadok, the son of Bena, repaired, and next to them the Tekoites, repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joadida, the son of Paseah, Meshulam, the son of Bosadiah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars, and next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uzael, the son of Herahiah, goldsmith, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, uh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramoth, repaired opposite to his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hasabaniah, repaired. Melchizedek, the son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section of the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zanna repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Melchizedek, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalem, the son of Kolhazah, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Beth-zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Raham, the son of Benai, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half-district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of the half-district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory of the buttress. 
After him, Barak, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. And after him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired and after them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maasiah, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Azai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parash, the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far, far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house, and Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Amen. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> so what you find here is a catalog of forgotten names and places. It's kind of like sitting down at someone's uh, home movie reels, isn't it? after they just went on their vacation, and they're telling you every last detail of how their trip went. And you're thinking to yourself, Snoresville. Now, there are, there are a couple of people, I think, that might have found this chapter to be interesting. I'm thinking of the engineers in the room. You guys were riveted by this, weren't you? As you were thinking of this mass feed of construction that had taken place, or maybe the linguists who were thinking to themselves, I can't believe that he just pronounced all of those names. But then there's the rest of us who started nodding off at verse 2. Now, you might be tempted to think that a chapter like Nehemiah 3 has no value to be added to our lives, uh, but we know that the Scripture makes a claim of itself. You know, many pastors, actually, when I was looking for sermons and saying, what in the world did people do with this chapter, either gave it a sentence passing or they just simply avoided it altogether. But what does Scripture say? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That means that Nehemiah 3 even has something to say to us, doesn't it? So, if this is the Bible's self-claim, what does Nehemiah 3 have to say? And I think you'll actually find that it has a lot to say. Let's begin by looking at some principles. This is not a passage that you pick apart verse by verse by verse. You pull principles from the passage so that you can gain understanding. The first thing that we see is that there's power in a common purpose. 
Did you notice that there was a name that was strikingly absent from Nehemiah 3 after all of those names I read? Nehemiah. The guy that the book's about. Yeah, someone Nehemiah was building in this wall, but it wasn't the Nehemiah that we've been following for three sermons now. He was strikingly absent. I suspect that there's a reason for this. I think he leaves his name out for two reasons. First, Nehemiah is a humble kind of guy. He doesn't need to be in the headlines. He doesn't care about the notoriety. But I think, secondly, that Nehemiah understands the power of invisible leadership. What is invisible leadership? Well, I found this helpful definition of it. Invisible leadership embodies situations in which dedication to a compelling and deeply held common purpose is the motivating force for leadership. This common purpose provides inspiration for participants to use their strengths willingly, whether in a leader role or a follower role, and cultivates a strong shared bond that connects participants to each other in pursuit of their purpose. That's what we see happening here in Nehemiah 3, isn't it? Which leads us to a leadership principle. Number 11, leaders understand the power of a common purpose. Why is this so important? Because the purpose is more important than the person. The mission is bigger than a man. And God has given the church of Jesus Christ a common purpose so that a church wouldn't rise and fall whether there was a person that you liked at the pulpit or a program that you liked or a building that you liked. There's a mission. There's something bigger than ourselves that unites us together so that we would advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the Great Commission. It's a call to bring the gospel to people in every people group all over the earth. Our sphere here in Cape Cod begins right in our own back door, our own neighborhood, Barnstable, Yarmouth. And remember, we looked at the statistics, 1.5% evangelical, one church for every 8,889 people when we know that a healthy area would actually have one church for every 500 people, right? We've got our work cut out for us. But then it extends beyond that. It goes into New England. It goes into North America. It goes to the ends of the earth. Our common purpose isn't just about evangelism. It's about discipleship. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, teach them to obey my commands. He wants them to be true followers of him so that they would give God glory. And that's ultimately what it's about. People coming to find their deepest joy and satisfaction in God. That's why we have a vision here. Worship, transformation, mission. This is the common purpose that binds us together. Now, everything flows out of this common purpose. We'll see something very important in this passage. The common purpose can only be achieved if everyone is mobilized. Everybody, every person sitting in every chair, every person that thinks they have nothing to contribute to the mission actually indeed has something very significant to contribute to the mission of God. Look at Nehemiah 3. There's 38 individual workers named, 42 different groups identified. There are uh, workers that we said before that Nehemiah wasn't even able to name, but all of them are assigned a place. They're all assigned a task, a responsibility. 
he is describing total mobilization. Everyone has a place, and everyone must be in their place doing their work. Which leads us to another leadership principle. Leaders seek to mobilize everyone. There's not just a cross-section of the church that is important. Every single person in every single chair contributes to the overall work that God's called us to do. What does mobilization involve? Well, it involves everyone seeing themselves as responsible. Everyone is responsible. What happens when we lose that sense of responsibility? Imagine these workers around this wall and one person's looking around and they're seeing everyone else actively engaged and they say to themselves, you know, they look like they got this under control. I'm going to go off into the cool shade of the orange groves and just kind of relax for a little bit. And then one person does that and then another and then another. Or think of it this way. What if they looked around and said, oh, I know that a building project like this is very expensive and that we're all to contribute of our resources, but it's been a tough month. I think they can handle it. And then one person thinks that way and then another and then another. What happens to the project? It falls apart, doesn't it? Status quo remains. In fact, we talked about this last week. It doesn't, we never actually enter into status quo. We actually start going into decline. This is something that has taken place across the North American church. I want to just cite a couple of statistics to help you understand how if people stop feeling a sense of responsibility, decline takes place. Uh, let's think through it, of it through a couple of uh, measures Statisticians use measures to give us big picture looks, don't they? So one measure would be regular church attendance. Now, regular church attendance obviously was measured um, many years ago in the sense that people were showing up to church almost every single Sunday. But they have so drastically changed their measure that a regular attender today is considered to be a person who attends three out of eight Sundays. So that's less than 50% of the time. What about giving? Uh, if you look at giving in the North American context, particularly here, um, the average American evangelical gives 2.3%. Let me give you a perspective builder here. The Great Depression, Christians gave 3.3% of their total income. People that were on the verge of starvation uh, evangelism is another measure. They say that 90% of evangelicals have never shared their faith outside of their family. You see what happens when we disengage from responsibility? When we see that, think to ourselves that my contribution doesn't really matter? Collectively, when that type of mindset takes shape in a community, a local church, or a nation for that matter, Spiritual lethargy sets in. That's why we talk about every member here at Osterville Baptist. We believe that the only way for the mission to be accomplished is if every member would see that they have a part to play in the mission. So we talk about every Sunday, pray 365, 
Bible plus one. Participate in discipleship. Participate in serving. Give 10. Give of your material resources to accomplish the work of the local church. And then finally, reach two. If we all see this together as mission critical, if we all say to ourselves, um, unless I fill my position, my responsibility, uh, the mission fails. And I think then that we would see status quo change and the mission be accomplished. Each person needs to grab a stone, don't they? Let's look at another thing that we see here. Everyone must cooperate together if mobilization is going to happen. We're not competing, we're cooperating. Do you see the phrases um, reoccurringly next to him, next to them, after him, after him? You'll find that these phrases are recorded 28 times. So there's 21 of the 32 verses where you see that phrase mentioned. Nehemiah is referencing a building project where there's 40 to 45 sections of wall being brought up all at the same time. It's simultaneous. It's harmonious. There was no competition involved. Each person knew that this project would only succeed if everyone wins. I was thinking about that. Uh, there was a story that challenges my cultural mindset as I think about the biblical worldview. A missionary was uh, serving in the Philippines and he loved to pray, play croquet. And so he wanted to teach some of the indigenous people there how to play croquet. They set up all the wickets around the yard. He had invited them to come in and he started teaching them the use of the mallet, the ball, and the, the rules of the game. Now, as the game had progressed, there was an opportunity for one player to take advantage of a situation. He could knock the other player's ball out of play. So the missionary went over, and he gave the advice to his friend, and the friend just looked puzzled. He said, why would I knock his ball out of the court? And the missionary said, because you want to win. Well, the short native, clad in the clothing of short natives, shook his head in bewilderment. In that hunting and gathering society, people survived not by competing, but by sharing every aspect of their life together. So the game continued, but no one followed the missionary's advice. Instead of doing that, when one player would finish the game, they would not stop what they were doing. They would actually go back into the game and start giving advice to the other players to see how they could finish the game. And finally, when they had come to the last player who had the last ball to hit through the wicket, and he hit it through, the entire group who was all playing together cheered aloud and said, We've won! We've won! Isn't that a different way of looking at the world? Now, I am not against competition. I'm not going to give you any sports lingo because I don't even know what I'm talking about with regard to that. But I think this is a good mindset when you think about the local church. Nehemiah 3 could only happen when everyone said together, we won. And the local church only wins if everyone says together, we won. Let's consider another principle from the text. Our common purpose is bigger. It's bigger. 
If we are going to be a people of common purpose, we have to understand just how big it is. If we're going to achieve our common purpose, we can't get distracted by lesser things. And that's another leadership principle. Leaders do not get distracted by lesser things. You see, our common purpose is bigger than our position. Look at verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. You might recall that fourth leadership principle. Leaders are the first to make themselves available. That's exactly what we see Eliashib doing in this text, isn't it? He's the high priest. He has a position of authority and power that is large, it's broad. And this isn't even his role. I mean, the priests were not the ones who did the hard manual labor. The Levites did. And yet he saw that the common purpose was bigger than his position. The purpose is bigger than the person. The mission bigger than the man. And so Eliashib went and he built the sheep gate because this was the gate where the animals would come through for the worship of God, for the sacrificial system. Now look at verse 5 with me. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Anytime you are reading Old Testament narrative and there's a, a sidebar comment like that, big deal. It's not just a, a passing type of comment. You see, this big uh, comment would literally le- read in the Hebrew like this. Their nobles did not bring their necks into service to their Lord. It's uh, an idiom that they would use in the Old Testament. To have a stiff neck in the Bible is describing a proud person who's unwilling to do what the Lord asks them to do. I'm too good for this. Can I just say this? No one in all of human history was ever too good for anything. Anything. It has to do with work that contributes to the betterment of society or the work of the Lord or anything like that. No one is too good for anything. I want you to hear the sons of Korah for a moment from Psalm 84, verses 11 and 12. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Know who these guys came from? They came from a guy named Korah. That's why they're sons of Korah. He led a rebellion against Moses because the role that God had assigned to him just wasn't good enough for him. He wanted to participate in the bigger responsibilities and so he started rabble-rousing around the camp and he brought everyone in with him and they confronted Moses and the Lord set Moses and Aaron apart and he swallowed them up with the ground. But Korah's sons aren't like this, are they? They get it. They understand that the worship of God is bigger than any one position. I would rather be a doorkeeper. Basically, Lord, you are so worthy that I will take any piece of the pie. Even if it's a sliver that big, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'll clean the toilets, Lord. 
I'll open up the doors for people. I'll stand out in the parking lot and greet people as they come in. Any slice of the pie where I get to contribute to your work is worth it. The sons of Korah got it. Eliashib, he got it. Do we get it? It's bigger than our differences. Look at the differences of these people working together. Priests, Levites, temple servants, goldsmiths, merchants, officials, private individuals, people from different towns. One guy even is so excited about the work that he says to his daughters, girls, roll up your sleeves. We're going over to that wall and we're going to start building together. I mean, just think about this. It's a motley crew, isn't it? It sounds like a place I come to regularly. The church. I heard a funny analogy um, when Paul describes the church a couple of times in the New Testament. He uses this metaphor of a building. You know, structure like this. And you would think that when you're building a, a building, so God is the master architect, he's building the church up, that you would want to use uniform blocks, wouldn't you, in order to build that building? You would just get this machine and it would stamp out blocks that are all the same shape and size, think alike, want to do the same thing, all of that good stuff. Bop, 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 bop. And you're just building that wall up and it would just be so easy to accomplish the mission of God. In fact, I believe it was in the 1980s that there was a church growth principle that they called the homogeneous principle. So homo meaning same, genius meaning kind. That if you would get people into a room that all thought alike, that came from the same socioeconomic background, same ethnic background, um, same ages, all of those types of things that the church would grow. You know what happened? It actually grew. But is that always a good thing? I mean, how does that back up with the scriptures? Colossians 3.11, Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So Paul is saying here that you're not building with uniform blocks at all. In fact, it's much more like trying to build with bananas. I mean, think about it for a moment. We're all kind of like a little bit awkward and different. And if you don't think that you're awkward or different, just travel across the country or across the world for that matter. And people will let you know when you arrive in their context that you are awkward and different. Some bananas are green. Others are ripe. Some are way overripe and they're starting to smell. Some are big and yellow, some are small and red, some have that little jagged piece at the stem that when you go to grab for it, it pokes you. Boy, you say, well, that's just a big mess. I mean, tell me about it. I feel your pain on that. But here's the deal. Jesus knows that if he can build his church with a bunch of ragtag bananas, it will send a loud and clear message to the world that his gospel has the power to change lives, that it is bigger than any of the things that divide us. What is the mortar for this crazy, crazy build? Love. 
the Spirit of God pouring out the love of God into the hearts of the believers. That's why a passage like 1 Corinthians 13 is so important. We often read that in an individual way, but it's a corporate encouragement. Osterville Baptist Church must be patient and kind. Osterville Baptist Church must not insist on its own way. Osterville Baptist Church must not be irritable and resentful. And I'll tell you, when God does that, when he pours out the love in our hearts, he can do awesome things with a bunch of bananas. We might have a lot of differences, but our differences, when unified, turn out to be our strengths. We are better together. A church will always outthink, outperform, and outlast any of the individual members. Our differences make us stronger. I want you to notice another thing that's bigger than. It's bigger than our comfort zone. Notice how people are stepping outside of their comfort zone. You have priests and perfumers and a guy's daughters. Now, I'm not trying to be stereotypical, but I don't imagine that any one of these people in these groups had ever engaged in this type of construction before. In fact, I would say that this is way outside of their comfort zone, but they heard Nehemiah say, will you build the wall with me? And they just simply rose their hands and said, yes, I will contribute to that in any way, shape, and form. I wonder if sometimes we get stuck in inactivity and the spiritual work because we're saying to ourselves, I don't really feel comfortable. Some people will often think to themselves, well, I just don't know what my spiritual gift is. And so instead of getting involved in the work, they just kind of wait and wait and wait. And they never actually end up doing anything. Or there's another type of person that might think to themselves, I don't see any responsibility that lines up with my specific gift. And I think spiritual gifts and knowing them is very important. I think when we're aligned with our spiritual gifts that we accomplish quite a bit. But there's plenty of times that we just simply need to roll up our sleeves and say, you know, something needs done, and I'm going to get involved, and I'm going to do it. God often calls us to do things that we're not equipped to do, and maybe even that we don't want to do. This is why Melchizedek stands out to me. Look with me at verse 14. Melchizedek, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakram, repaired the dung gate. Wait a minute, by dung gate do you mean? Oh yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Melchizedek was working in the place where all the bad stuff goes. He was working hard and he was not smelling good while he did it. But wasn't that guy a district leader? Couldn't he have used his power and influence to do something like a better ministry than the Dungate? Well, I can just imagine the scenario, can't you? Nehemiah's up there and he's asking people to participate and then he just throws Dungate out there and people look over at each other and did he just say what I think he said? The Dungate? And then you get that, that moment, you know what I'm talking about, when everyone's looking in every which way but at Nehemiah. I mean, just eyes everywhere but at Nehemiah. 
And then a loud voice speaks up. It's Melchizedek. I would be glad to do that. It's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it, right? Are you willing to be a Melchizedek? Are you willing to serve in the nursery even after the first diaper blowout? Are you willing to stack chairs knowing that that will further the mission of the church? Would you show up and work even if others weren't? Osterville Baptist Church has a Melchizedek. I hope you know that. His name is Paul Chesbro. Yes, you may clap for him. Every single church needs a Melchizedek. We need more men and women who will gladly just step outside of their comfort zone, see that a job needs to get done, and say, you know what? I can do that. I'm willing to do that. So if the mission is this big, if it's this important, if it accomplishes the purposes of God, then by golly, we need to stay together if we're going to get this mission accomplished. And that's the last principle that we need to understand here. You see, just imagine this build, if everyone's building in their particular zone or area. In one group, they're building along a, a cliffside, and they think to themselves as they're putting the wall up, you know, this would be just a beautiful space for a vista. I mean, just look at that view out there. It's beautiful. We could just come here and stare at God's creation. I know Elijah said that this is a, or Nehemiah said this is a wall, and it's for protection, but can't we just have one spot where we just simply enjoy the view? And then you have another group, and they're building a patio, and they say to themselves, we're right by the orange groves here, and we'll just throw some patio parties and serve everyone orange juice. It would just be wonderful. What happens to the build? It's no longer accomplishing its purpose. It's a big mess, isn't it? See, leadership principle 14, leaders know that if one group loses focus of the purpose, it diminishes the effect of the entire group. Now, I've found this principle to be challenging personally. I mean, if I get so focused on the preaching of the word that I forget about the overarching purpose, I'm diminishing the mission. If we, in any of our particular projects that we feel passionate about, and we start using that, that I, me, mine type of language, it diminishes the mission. Check to see. Ask yourself, do I get it? Am I in sync with the overall purpose? You see, the church ultimately does not exist so that we can rearrange the furniture and create a comfy, cozy space. I like comfy and cozy, but it's not all about insiders. It exists so that those who are outside of it can be brought inside of the church. The church does not exist for itself. It exists for other people who don't know Jesus to be radically transformed by the gospel so that they would come into right worship with God. That's why we exist. We're not ultimately here just to be better parents, though that's a great thing. We're not ultimately here to memorize the books of the Bible, though that is a great thing. Ultimately, we are here, we're serving together, living together, because Christ has called us to a common purpose. And if we would band together and work, we would see that purpose take root. 
You might recall, if you were with us in January, that I challenged us through a balloon analogy. I said that some churches are filled with air. You know what happens when you fill a balloon with air? Uh, To keep that balloon in the air, what do you have to do? Keep smacking it. And pastors will have to do that. They'll have to motivate. Giving's down, so I'm going to preach a riveting sermon on giving. And then for the next two weeks, giving goes up. And you can think of that in any matter. Children's ministry, evangelism, church attendance, just smack, 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 smack. But what happens when the church is filled with helium? What happens if everyone's committed to the common purpose? Then we soar together. In that sermon, I asked the question, do you want to be a church that's filled with air or helium? You see, I don't want to do this by myself. And I know you don't want to do it by yourself. I firmly believe that the only way for this to work is if we do it together. We are better together. Would you bow your heads with me and pray?